This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. China has announced it will raise tariffs on $60 billion of U.S. goods starting on June 1st. This move is in retaliation for President uh, Donald Trump putting a 25% tariff on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports. While this will mostly impact business equipment, it will also hit consumer products such as clothing, furniture, and air conditioners. The White House Chief Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow said Sunday on Fox News that both sides will feel some pain from this move, including U.S. consumers. This contradicts the president who has said that China will bear the brunt of the cost. Meanwhile, it appears that the comments by both the president and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin saying trade talks went well last week and that negotiations continue despite the fact that no deal was reached in the 11th round of negotiations between the two countries. With the latest, we are joined on the phone by Marshall Meyer, Emeritus Professor of Management here at the Wharton School, and also by Jacques Talil, Director of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the University. University of Pennsylvania. He is also a law professor and political science professor here and deputy director of Penn's Center for the Study of Contemporary China. Marshall, Jacques, great to have you both with us today. Thank you both. Good morning. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Marshall, this appears to be a, a little bit of tit for tat at this point uh, between these two countries. Uh, the impacts when you're talking about, I guess, $200 billion versus $60 billion seemingly are, uh, are, are there's a, a great difference there. But it is something that it, it appears China felt that it had to do. Um, that's an understatement. Uh, remember, China's got its own food crisis right now. Um, they're losing about half their pigs to uh, African swine flu. And so not only do they need soybeans from the United States, but they're going to need pork from the U.S. And it looks like, now I've not read these stories thoroughly, uh, that they're about to impose tariffs on uh, a variety of U.S. farm products. Jacques, your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is a kind of escalating uh, trade war. Uh, the president has said they're easy to win, but it appears that they do tend to escalate at least first. And I think really there was almost no way this wasn't going to happen. When uh, the U.S. administration or the Trump administration announced that it was raising from 10 percent up to 25 percent, the existing tariffs on somewhat less than half of Chinese exports to the U.S. and is now threatening to put 25 percent we're up to 25% on almost all of the remaining goods. Uh, the Chinese are going to have to react in some way. Uh, the problem is they're sort of limited in the ways that they can react. So in a way, this tariff on U.S. exports, so actually only part of U.S. exports, increasing the tariffs from 10 to up to 25% on $60 billion, which is about half of what the U.S. exports, is almost the least they could do symbolically. I think the real pain is going to come if they resort to other methods, which are within the Chinese repertoire. But we're at a moment when both sides have some difficulties. Uh, economic growth is below uh, where the Chinese would like it to be. Uh, it's you know, pretty good by our standards, but they're facing some economic pressure, and obviously trade wars don't help on that front. And in the U.S., we've benefited from an economy that's doing very, very well, although partly thanks to the tax stimulus. Uh, and so the question is, what's going to happen here as these higher tariffs, if they actually fully go into effect, will start to have more significant effects on consumers and possibly the broader economy. And, and Jacques, we have a few weeks now between, uh, before I should say, uh, the G20 summit, and that was starting to be looked at as an important meeting anyway, where President Trump and President Xi would be able to sit down and talk. So I, I guess this these moves over the last three days or so probably put a little more importance on that. I think they upped the pressure. The question is whether they upped the likelihood of a good outcome. 
Uh, it, I mean, I think both sides are now in a position where it's going to be politically very tough to back down. Uh, Xi Jinping needs not to appear to be caving to the Americans. This sort of image of him as the, the strong man and the uh, the wise leader and all of that uh, is, is something he can't afford easily to give up. And the Chinese response to the pressure, the increase in tariffs from the U.S. side has been in the media and the social media platforms in China controlled by the government and so on to push this kind of we will stand firm, we will not cave in. And indeed, when we saw the latest uh, sort of falling apart of the process, which was over what the U.S. described as China taking off the table certain concrete promises about how to change Chinese law, the reaction in China was, or at least the way it was sold to the Chinese public, was the U.S. can't tell us how to make our domestic laws. That's neocolonialism. That's extraterritorial reach. Uh, so the temperature's gone up a lot. So in some sense, yes, the pressure is up because these tariffs, although on the books now, won't really be put into effect for a couple of weeks. It only applies, that is, the tariffs the U.S. is imposing, uh, they only apply once uh, things are shipped post that date. So we got a couple of weeks before anything uh, hits the docks here on the import side, and the Chinese announced that their tariffs won't go into effect until June 1. So it's a sort of similar uh, arrangement. We have two weeks. Uh, the pressure's on. But so far, we've had a lot of near deals that have never really turned into a deal. Marshall, your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts concern U.S. domestic politics. Um, uh, this appears to be uh, one of the few issues where there's bipartisan agreement. Uh, we heard Schumer say, um, uh, uh, Democratic leader in the Senate, Schumer say, um, yes, we got to be tough on China. Here's my deep concern. Um, I'm worried that the Trump administration is being pushed on this um, by the um, alt-right, the far-right, by the Steve Bannons of the world. And the agenda there is not purely economic. Okay. Uh, the agenda there is much, much broader. I've got a quote here from Bannon. Uh, I heard him speak on TV a couple nights ago, and I caught this on the Internet. And this is very, very worrisome. It says, quote, I think ultimate success in, is regime change in China. And I realize in this regard I'm considered a radical. I think the goal into China is simply to break the back of this totalitarian mercantilist economic society. Now, we go down that path, we have huge problems, and I hope it's clear among Trump's loyal opposition um, that um, they're not endorsing this program. Right. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Marshall Meyer, Emeritus Professor here at the Wharton School, joining us on the phone along with Jacques Delisle from the University of Pennsylvania. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, at DanLoney, L-O-N-E-Y-21. Jacques, you mentioned a moment ago uh, other avenues that China may be able to take to to have an impact. What specifically could those avenues be? Well, there's quite a rich menu. Uh, tariffs are certainly part of the mix, as we discussed. And although China exports more than two times as much to the U.S. as it imports from us, that's still a fairly significant amount of imports they could hit, although they're wary of doing that for some of the reasons Marshall discussed. But there are a lot of other mechanisms for making it painful to uh, U.S. companies uh, and to U.S. exporters. So instead of tariffs, you can have uh, slow or extra probing inspections at customs when goods arrive. You can have more zealous enforcement of any number of Chinese regulatory laws against American companies that are on the ground in China 
doing business, uh, so safety inspections, licensing inspections, and so on. Uh, we've seen this kind of thing happen before, and it's very hard to police because it is essentially select, somewhat selective enforcement of legitimate laws on the books. Uh, there also have been instances where American firms have been quite frustrated about what they see as not fully fair scrutinizing of inbound investments, mergers, and acquisitions of Chinese firms by American acquirers. You know, the Chinese claims that's sort of tit for tat for the way we use the CFIUS process, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, to police Chinese investment. Well, you know, the claim is on both sides it's getting fairly politicized, and one could easily see that ratcheting up. China now has laws that resemble U.S. laws but are somewhat more flexibly applied uh, to undertake national security and national economic security scrutiny of of acquisitions and investments. Marshall? In that vein, U.S. has some tools as well. Um, maybe the most powerful tool would be export controls. What if Qualcomm chips, for example, uh, did not go to China? Uh, that have a significant impact on their industry. Right. That was the ZTE problem, as, as we may recall from the uh, long, seemingly long-distant past of a year or two ago. Yeah. Uh, Z, ZTE almost faced the death penalty when the Trump administration was going to impose chip exports, and that really would have killed the company, and you actually had very top-level uh, interactions, that is Xi Jinping asking Trump uh, not to impose those export restrictions on ZTE, which were based on the violation of sanctions for exporting uh, controlled technology to North Korea and Iran. But Marshall, while as you both have said, that it appears that this is an issue that both sides of the political aisle here in the United States believe is an important one to try and see if you can bring if you can make some significant change in terms of how China is is approaching some of these issues, I think the question remains, and, and I think you both have mentioned this in the, in the last few months on this show, is how do you police it? And how do you make sure that they are actually following whatever changes come to pass down the road? I don't think the issue is policing. Um, okay. there's, there's no way uh, U.S. or, in fact, even China um, can police closely um, uh, unfair behavior uh, on either side, quite frankly. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think the issue is what's the larger atmosphere like? What's the mood like? Are we working cooperatively? Or are we sliding toward protracted conflict that could go beyond the economic realm? And I, I think here uh, the, the better strategy right now is to kind of, you know, take a break, um, step back from the brink, and explore arenas where maybe U.S. and China can cooperate. Um, it doesn't garner headlines necessarily. It doesn't rile up the base. But it might make it possible uh, to resume uh, uh, trade discussions on a slightly more amicable basis. One of these areas, by the way, is control of fentanyl. Um, you'll yeah. remember from the December meeting in Buenos Aires that um, – uh, the Chinese offered and Trump accepted their uh, uh, proposal to uh, ban fentanyl, and uh, they've uh, since uh, banned uh, uh, a lot of fentanyl derivatives. And I understand from my friends that they're actually taking action in China to shut down the production of fentanyl. I don't have this evidence firsthand, but this is what I'm told. Jacques, your thoughts? Well, I think Marshall points to uh, what would be a good way forward, which is looking at those areas of cooperation. And despite the currently rather fraught relationship and atmosphere, there certainly are areas of a potential agreement. And you know, the, the fentanyl is certainly one of them. And both sides still have a stake in not decoupling. I mean, Steve Bannon has a different view, but 
but the economies are now so deeply interlinked that a trade war that escalates uh, is not really good for anybody. And it's, of course, even worse that spills over into a more generally uh, really bad relationship that's uh, you know, beyond economics. That said, though, I think it's, it's really not a good moment. Uh, and I wouldn't be terribly optimistic because the clock is ticking toward the U.S. election. And I think there has been a lot of each side misreading where the other is. I think the United States, the Trump administration, has overestimated how much being tough on tariffs will get China to cave. I think they underestimated uh, the degree to which China would see that as a political setback to be perceived as uh, deferring too much to American demands. And I think the Chinese underestimated the degree to which the engaged China consensus in Washington has essentially flipped 180 degrees, uh, where there are people who are calling for a new Cold War and even people who are not calling for that are much more skeptical about engaging China. And that's based on an earlier misperception where a lot of people have been hopeful that getting China into the WTO, engaging China economically and so on, would lead, if not to Steve Bannon-style regime change, at least would lead to a China that looks a bit more like us politically and short of that, that has an economic system that doesn't pose the kind of difficulties uh, that we've seen that are underpinning some of the um, current fraught relationship, things like industrial policy that pushes high-tech development sometimes uh, by acquiring intellectual property through questionable means, favoritism for state enterprises, and, so, and things like that. Jacques, we've talked with you in the past, uh, uh, especially uh, about two years ago when the idea of TPP was still in play, and obviously it is not right now. Let's go back to that discussion for just one second and, and where we are at this moment. If TPP had moved forward, what kind of potential situation would be would we be looking at right now? I think we'd be better off. I mean, the TPP went forward without the U.S. It's now the CPTPP. Right. Uh, and it's now largely led by Japan. And Japan really stepped up and took this kind of leadership role for this quite liberal, quite deeply integrating trade arrangement. And there are two consequences of the U.S. not being part of the TPP. Well, probably more than two, but two that come to mind are the U.S. is now being shut out of certain Asian markets. Not completely, but it's, it's doing less well because it's not inside uh, that uh, grouping. And that's going to start to hurt some U.S. companies, uh, especially U.S. exports. Uh, and service providers and, and things like that. But in addition, we have a situation where the U.S. is not part of this block that it would be much larger if it included the U.S. and then would create a degree of alignment between the U.S., Japan, and also among other significant uh, East Asian economies. And what that would do is essentially create this block that China would be on the outside looking in on. One of the goals eventually was to let China into the TPP, but only if it undertook the kind of economic reforms uh, that would make it able to meet TPP requirements, and many of those reforms would serve the agenda that the Trump administration is now trying to push bilaterally so far without a lot of success, and with the result being this incipient trade war. Marshall? Um, uh, just to uh, add to what uh, Jacques said there, um, let's flip this look at the China side. Uh, part of TPP was to contain Belt and Road. Um, that containment mechanism is not there. And Belt and Road, whatever its flaws, and there are many, as we've discussed on this program, is still moving forward pretty rapidly. And we have no alternative to it at this point. So the consequence is that U.S. is trying to act unilaterally against China. It's hard to mobilize its allies. Some of our allies, particularly in Europe, are wavering mm -hmm. as to who's going to set the agenda 
for trade, who's going to set the platforms for technology going forward. And so the U.S. is in a weakened position as a consequence. There, there is also the part to this, uh, Marshall, of, of the products that actually would be impacted by these tariffs uh, that would be going into China from the United States. And, and obviously it's a, it is a little bit of a less impactful area than it, it would be from the products that are coming from China to the United States. Uh, that being said, the agriculture sector seemingly has been uh, the area that has been most impacted by the tariffs over the last 12 months or so. Mm-hmm. How does the agriculture sector and how do the consumer react to this particular round uh, of tariffs that are put into play? I don't know. The Trump administration is promising massive subsidies. But what are you going to do with the soybeans? Where are you going to put them? Um, what use will they be put to? I don't think these questions have been answered. And what we risk is a permanent shift in China's supply base, because remember, Brazil can produce almost as many soybeans as the U.S. U.S. may be the only real source of alfalfa if you want to have dairy herds in China. But on soybeans, they've got lots of alternatives. So we, we, we risk a long-term weakening of our agricultural sector. And that can't be a good thing economically or strategically. Jack? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the issue is short-term versus long-term consequences. And one of the reasons we haven't seen a big fallout, we haven't seen more reaction in the stock market, and we haven't seen companies really start to move terribly aggressively to move their supply chains, which now all run through China for a lot of manufactured goods, is there remains some belief that some deal will be struck that everybody can live with. Right. And we won't see this resort to permanent tariffs or things that are even worse than the tariffs we've got in place now. If that belief that this will get worked out, because basically can't, people can't believe that, that uh, Xi Jinping and Trump are going to play Selma and Louise and drive the car off the, off the cliff. <laughs> uh, the, the, but if, if people start to think this is a lasting phenomenon, then you really could see significant dislocations. You could see companies relocating their supply chains. In some cases, that's going to be uh, moving production into China uh, to avoid tariffs on goods exported from the U.S. In some cases, it's going to be moving sources out of China to countries that don't face the tariffs that China does. That could be very disruptive. Uh, And, you know, it's a pretty efficient global supply chain out there right now. If you start messing with it for reasons that are not rooted in economic fundamentals, but are rooted in policy choices about bilateral trade wars, uh, then that's costly. And so in the near term, we'll see prices go up. We'll see some impact on GDP. Uh, The new tariffs uh, that Trump's talking about imposing will be ones that will be more visible to consumers. It's on uh, consumer imported goods. So, you know, holiday shopping prices will go up and things like that. You can weather that in the short term, but if it leads to a, a real realignment, that's a significant economic consequence, and it's one that puts the U.S. on the sidelines of, of uh, a global economy that it has been very engaged with. But one of the countries I, I, I heard today already that could be uh, a country that could benefit from a change in global supply chain, Jock, would be Vietnam, which is looking to continue to build itself up right now. Right, and I think it will accelerate something that was already happening there. That is, China is no longer, by and large, a cheap labor production place. China's advantage is that it is reliable, it adapts very quickly, uh, but its workers are no longer super low wage. It's an upper-middle-income upper, upper income country. So a lot of the industries that still depend on cheap labor were already starting to migrate out of China, and Vietnam was one of the main beneficiaries. It's nearby. It's in some ways similar. It has adopted a regulatory model for export-led economic development and foreign investment 
purpose-driven development that really looks a lot like China a generation ago. Marshall, there is also, uh, in terms of products that China buys from the United States, companies like Boeing, and and obviously they have a relationship with Apple as well, mm. uh, which obviously could see an impact from this as long as this continues on. Yeah, there's always Airbus. And uh, Airbus doesn't have the uh, 737 MAX problem right now. Um, there's, there's another issue which is, I think, uh, equally significant, maybe of greater significance, um, uh, and that's called cyberspace. Uh, increasingly, we're dividing the world into cyber regions or cyber spheres, and this is mainly for purposes of security. We don't know how to have totally secure connections around the world, to put that mildly. Um, and, um, you know, the big players are the U.S., China, and you may want to add to that Iran for mischief, North Korea for mischief, uh, the Russia, of course. Um, increasingly, commerce is going to operate over cyber channels. And so as we begin to regionalize, as we begin to set up fences uh, globally, uh, we're also limiting commerce in a way that has nothing to do with tariffs. So the decoupling that's occurring in cyberspace is just going to be accelerated, exacerbated by the tariff walls we're putting up. Jacques? I think that's right. The cyber uh, area is becoming hugely important economically, and it's one of the flashpoints in the current U.S.-China conflict, uh, cyber spying, cyber theft, cyber espionage, uh, uh, things of that ilk. Um, so we're going to see, I think, more conflict on that front. There's always been a gap between how the U.S. and China approach uh, controlling misbehavior in that sphere. And we're hearing things like Chinese running, China running fiber optic cables in ways that don't pass through uh, uh, seabed areas the U.S. controls. So there's there is a bit of delinking of the infrastructure going on as well, as Marshall points out. It, it is interesting, Marshall, that uh, at least some of the reports out there uh, several days ago were that the, the talks that occurred late last week were ones that potentially were, were getting us a lot closer to a deal and, and whether or not they were going to start to even consider having some sort of signing ceremony in, in the future. So it appears that we've almost done a, a 180 at this point. Um, yeah, and it's nearly inexplicable. Now, of course, uh, as we know, within the Trump administration, there's been um, very, very dramatic conflict between the so-called globalists and the folks who take a much more U.S.-centric view, and appears the latter group has won. Maybe that just came to a head recently. Maybe, again, Steve Bannon whispered, uh, uh, to Trump. I don't know why uh, the U.S. Uh, suddenly got harsh on this. Uh, it is reported, of course, that the Chinese pulled off the table some commitments we thought they had met. Uh, I think anyone who negotiates with the Chinese knows that often there are last-minute changes, and um, what you do in those circumstances is simply hold firm but you don't necessarily escalate. You just hold firm. We chose to escalate, uh, and we're now seeing the consequences of that. Gentlemen, great to talk to you again. We look forward to hearing from you down the road. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you. Mar Marshall Meyer uh, from uh, the Wharton School Emeritus Professor of Management, Jacques Delisle, Director of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.